Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. In this episode, I have the pleasure of meeting Drew Weatherhead. Drew is a black belt under Dave Rothwell. I guess Drew is most famous for being the mind behind the Because Jiu-Jitsu Instagram meme account. But honestly, I found out about him first by his appearance on the BJJ Online Summit back in April of 2020. I was very impressed by his teaching style, so I subsequently fell down the rabbit hole of his YouTube, Instagram, and Because Jiu-Jitsu instructionals. If you're ever in the Central Alberta, Canada region, make sure to check his aptly named Academy, Central Alberta Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, and keep an eye out for his soon-to-be-released instructional on Keenan's Jiu-Jitsu X-Site. He also has some mini instructionals that he will be releasing, I think one of which is out now, so go check it out. It becomes evident early in the conversation that Drew is a very intelligent guy. But what is even more impressive is his ability to convey difficult concepts and offer valuable options for practitioners to consider in easy, digestible ways. Basically, what I'm suggesting is that all of you check out his stuff. It's good. Really good. Drew also has what may be the most confusing path to Black Belt I've ever heard. It's a roller coaster ride of a story, so take my word. Hang on tight, because at the end of it, you'll feel like that meme from The Hangover where Zach Galifianakis is doing insane mathematics in his head. I had a great time with Drew. It was like that scene in the movie Step Brothers, where they ask each other random questions they have to answer at the same time, only to realize they've just become best friends. <laughs> then decide to do karate in the garage together. But enough with the movie analogies. In this episode, you will get some great BJJ insight that you will all take value from. And with that, I give you Drew Weatherhead. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda, with a very special guest, and you are... Drew Weatherhead, probably best known for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu meme page because Jitsu. So, Drew, you are a black belt under Professor Dave Rothwell, correct? That is correct, yep. Can you tell us about basically your origin story? This is going to be a, a long intro, <laughs> yeah, then. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one All of right. those background stories that doesn't go quite as linear as a lot of lineages would like to be. As it goes... I'm up in Alberta, Canada, and right. I started training in 2007. And in 2007, in Alberta, Canada, there was not a whole lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. In fact, at that point, there was only one black belt in the entire province. Wow. So I had found, forgetting how I got interested in it, I had found the only jiu-jitsu place in the city that I was living through the Yellow Pages. And so I found them, phoned them up, and was there the same week in a garage dojo with tarps and mats Wow. And about five other people. And that was my instructor at that point, who's not Dave. He is Dave, just a different Dave. <laughs> Dave okay. Bill is, is my original instructor. And I yeah. trained with him in basically that fashion for the first eight to 10 years of my training. Most of my training and almost all of my instruction came through him, wow. who uh, isn't very well known and uh, didn't have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, which is why the lineage gets weird. He had a, okay. a Japanese jiu-jitsu black belt and had started incorporating Brazilian jiu-jitsu along the way. Uh -huh. So due to that path, I got a lot of extra instruction on the side through seminars, through uh, travel, through other gyms, cross-training and stuff like that, and got to the point where later down the line when I was we had a belt system that didn't have the black bar on it. It was the Japanese jiu-jitsu belt system. So we wanted to transfer officially and entirely into Brazilian jiu-jitsu by the time I was about a purple belt under Dave at that point. And we had decided like, we should probably move this over because I don't think it's going to be possible if we keep going further 
You know, I can't mm-hmm. transfer a brown belt over kind of thing. And mm-hmm. at that point, this was, I want to say 2013, 2014, I had gotten contact with Robert Drysdale, who you might know, ADCC world champion, mm-hmm. uh, very well known, was running the Zenith affiliation at that point. And there was a school not far from us, about two hours away that I, he came up for a seminar. So me and Dave went up there and, and sat down with him afterwards. We uh, rolled around a bit, sort of assessed where we were at. And we asked him if we would be able to get in on his affiliation to get some accreditation basically behind our gym. And he, at that point was permitted to and he agreed to uh, transfer my purple belt directly over. So I went from a Japanese jiu-jitsu purple belt technically, although again, all we were doing was Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he's like, yeah, you're definitely a purple belt. So I'll sign that. He gave me the document. And then from that point on, I carried on as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu lineage. But because Dave, my instructor, held a black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu, he didn't get to transfer straight over and had to basically reset through the Brazilian lineage. So uh, in a strange turn of events, my instructor is actually lower graded than I am in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now, even though he's had like 25 years experience. So <laughs> I'm, I'm technically a black belt. Not technically, I am a black belt, but my instructor is a brown belt that uh, I've got to actually present his belts with from blue through brown. This is where people are going to ask, like, how did I get a black belt then? It's Uh because of Dave Rothwell, who is, he's the highest ranked black belt in an affiliation called Pacific Top Team up in Canada here. Mm -hmm. Uh, They run tons of gyms in BC mostly and started branching out to Alberta where I'm at. I was well known as a competitor as well as a referee in the Mm -hmm. uh, Canadian Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation at that point. And Dave was also a ref there. So uh, we interacted quite constantly. There was a point when I had stopped my school, well, our school, stopped being part of the Zenith affiliation. We were kind of left in limbo. I was a purple belt for like four and a half years at this point with Mm -hmm. like no real track of getting to brown belt. So Dave, unbeknownst to me, had decided that he was going to, he came to do a seminar at our school and basically threw a brown belt on me afterwards and said, with this, you are graded under me. Anybody who who has a problem with that can talk to me. He's a third degree Hmm. black belt. And uh, he said, you absolutely stand up to the standards that I would expect. And not only that, you now have the autonomy to grade people underneath you up to purple four stripes. So that gave us our own basic route to grade at that point. And then about three years after that, I had him out for another seminar where he presented me with my black belt. And that was about two years ago. That story is uh, very complex. What well, probably the, one of the yeah. most complex stories besides uh, Stephen Whittier from SBG, who I just interviewed, mm. who has like a black belt in everything. It's it's insane. This guy. <laughs> well, um, this wow. is the thing that happens when you when you end up in these wild west kind of scenes that mm-hmm. are very very uh, burgeoning. There's nothing yeah. really instantiated. Like I said, when I started, there was literally one black belt, and by the time yeah. that I got my black belt, there was over two hundred. So the growth between then, you know, it was a 12 years that it took me to get to my black belt and it probably could have been done faster in a more um, built scene. Like if I was down in California, a lot of people do it in eight to 10, you know, but Mm -hmm. just these, uh, these extra steps and trying to like build the actual presence of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu from mm-hmm. the grassroots it takes kind of weird turns sometimes yeah there's there's a lot of questions from that i mean i want to talk to you about the refereeing aspect and mm-hmm. how that influenced your brazilian jiu-jitsu because i hear a lot of great things about refereeing as well but yeah. even taking a lot of steps back were you one of those kids who 
went into Taekwondo first and wasn't into team sports and that kind of drove you into BJJ or yeah, what was pretty it? Similar, pretty similar. I started with Goju Kai Karate uh, yeah. when I was 18 and did that for just, just shy of three years. And then uh, a move, I moved out of town, so it didn't make sense for me to keep training there. I ended up taking up a different martial art called Cali, uh, Illustrissimo mm-hmm. Cali, which is Filipino stick fighting. Mm-hmm. I did that for about two years. But at that point, I'd had like almost five years of experience in martial arts, and I'd noticed and was a little annoyed that the sparring between karate and the sparring at Cali was so controlled that it was not very mm. believable. And so I always had this thing in the back of my head, like, I think I can do what I'm being taught, right. you know, but if I ever actually have to use it, that might be the first time I have to use it against full force. So one of my friends who was in karate, he, uh, he was quote unquote, the jujitsu guy in our friend group because he had taken six weeks of training and had a couple of Valley Tudo VHSs. So yeah. he knew how to do a triangle. He knew how to do a rear naked choke, which means he could beat all of us. And we were screwing around one day and I, uh, he pulled me to the ground while we were wrestling and I managed to get him in a bent elbow lock, which I had known from Cali, which is an Americana. And he tapped and I was hooked at that point. I'm like, I just made the guy that doesn't want to give up, give up. That's wow. real. So tell me what then day one was like going into, I guess it was Japanese jiu-jitsu for you then, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, day one for me, I can still remember it. I remember my first class over 13 years ago. It was triangle chokes that day. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically because I had wrestled and grappled with my friends maybe half a dozen times. And I had, a, as a point of pride, as a know-nothing white belt, that I'd never been on the bottom. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in the first class, the very technique we start with is on the bottom. I felt so awkward. I'm like, I'm never yeah. going to be here. Why do I need to know this? Mm. Like nobody can get me on the ground on my back. So why oh, would wow. I care to attack from here? Uh, yeah, flash forward. And now I'm like basically just a guard player. <laughs> but yeah, so even though Dave has a black belt in Kedaru Jiu-Jitsu, which is Japanese, mm. by the time that I got there, it was 95% Brazilian, his curriculum. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of guard work, which is outside of Japanese jiu-jitsu traditionally. He's, he's a smaller guy, so he's like buck 50 soaking wet. And most wow. of the time is ending up on his back anyway. So he got very proficient at doing jiu-jitsu off his back. So he has a style that's very um, defense-oriented, very mm-hmm. traditional Gracie style of, you know, tie them up, sweep them, choke from top, take the backs, you know, what you would learn from a Gracie combatives course, basically. As everyone always references Rogan saying that the best person to learn from is a smaller person. Yeah. Right. So I think that that probably translates to your game quite a bit as well, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually it took me a long time to get out of the defense mindset, especially in competition, Thanks. because a lot of my best attacks came from inferior positions. So I would be mm-hmm. on my back or I'd be in half guard or, you know, that's where I, my game would pick up. When it got to the point where I would have to pass somebody's guard, I felt super awkward because mm. I wasn't used to being the aggressor, you know. Mm. So my passing didn't even really pick up until my brown belt. And I had to like put wow. a year's focus into getting good at passing. You mentioned refereeing. Can you go into like, what did that provide for you? And how has that translated to your game? And it must be helpful in terms of tournaments as well, right? In terms of competing and maybe your students competing. Yeah, definitely. So I got into refereeing kind of in a roundabout way because I was a tournament promoter already. So I was running tournaments and I Mm -hmm. just... 
I felt like I needed to be able to do the thing I, I was telling or asking people to do for me to realistically be able to do that, to be in a position to be like, I need you to referee. I need to know how to referee. So I started refereeing at other local tournaments. And then thankfully, and eventually I got into refereeing the CBJJF, which is a Canadian version basically of the IBJJF. They aren't mm -hmm. technically associated, but mm -hmm. it's the exact same rule set, the exact same formalities. So it was like the, the feeder league to the IBJJF essentially. Mm -hmm. So I started getting into those. And once you get into those style of tournaments, it's very, very technical, the refereeing. So what that did for me as, as a jujitsuka, somebody who had to do it, I found, because oftentimes I would referee and compete at the same tournament. I would take like an hour off, do my bracket, and then I would come back and ref. It would get me into the mindset of the points game, which is, is very interesting to watch from a third person, the third person on the mat, watching other groups roll and counting points as they come out, counting advantages, penalties, out of bounds. It gives you kind of like this God's eye view of how the game is played at the strategic level. And then you get to do it right back to back. So I find that it puts my head into the mentality of how to win those tournaments. I know Matt Kwan has uh, has emphasized that refereeing helped him a lot too in terms of understanding mm -hmm. the game and and not not necessarily playing the game but to to a degree you know understanding the rules and using them to your yes, advantage for in a sure. way, right I mean yeah I I refereed some of the same tournaments with him I even competed against him. What's the scene like now in terms of the growth there in um, Alberta pre-COVID and sort of where we're at now? Obviously, you know, it's impacting mm -hmm. tournaments. So what was it like, I guess, pre-COVID, you know, because I, I imagine there was a lush type of situation. And, and what's it like now in terms of like students, you know, to academy sort of ratio drop off versus like, I, I imagine there's very few tournaments happening, but, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. Yeah, the tournament scene is more or less dead right now. It has mm. been since March. Um, mm. The last tournament I ran was in late February. And mm -hmm. it was all like very razor's edge if it was even going to happen because things mm -hmm. were starting to become a little more apparent internationally, especially in China and Europe, mm -hmm. and seemed to be just a matter of time before it started hitting North America. So mm -hmm. uh, I managed to get that tournament in. And then I was actually in a camp myself to go. I was signed up for a local tournament to compete at Black Belt kind of as a, as a uh, warm up for the provincials that were coming up the month after that. Mm. So I was in the middle of a training camp when everything got shut down mid-March. Oh, man. Yeah, it really bummed me out because I had, uh, you know, big aspirations of making a black belt run. I hadn't mm -hmm. competed at black belt yet. I still haven't. It's been mm -hmm. almost two years. The first year, I was mostly focused on building my school, so I didn't really, you know, put the focus into training. But I was getting to the point now that, or at that point, where I had enough blue belts that had either come to the gym or had just been promoted that had given me some reasonable rounds. They can put me through a good camp, and uh, mm. yeah, everything kind of fell apart at that point. So to answer your question, no, there's not a lot of tournaments going on right now. There's a couple like invite only super fight kind of deals, but mm -hmm. public tournaments just aren't happening. And I couldn't even tell you when they're going to, to be honest, I'm just happy that my school is even partly open right now because of all the mandates. Can you let us know the name of your school? Central Alberta Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. <laughs> People have been telling me they've seen like a 50% student drop off, if not more. How's it going up there in terms of like uh, schools and Mm -hmm. and you know students and that kind of thing and everyone seems to be doing zoom and yeah. may maybe some privates 
I guess I, I should probably lay out how the Alberta government dealt with it because it's going to be different from place to place. So okay. for, for people to say when we got back from the first lockdown doesn't make sense if they've never gotten back from the first lockdown. But our first right. lockdown went from March 17th to June 26th. So it was like four months in there where nothing was going on. There was no hope of anything going on either. It kind of came out of the blue, like within the same week, they said, by the way, you can start back up. And we're like, oh, okay, <laughs> we're not going to die. That's cool. I like that. So we started back up and the, the question I always had in my mind, and it was getting pretty dire at that point because I'm still paying bills every month, you know, with yeah. no income coming in. It was not good. Uh, my question was always, if we ever come back, how many people are going to come back? How many people are going to be comfortable training body to body? You know, is that a thing that's not going to be socially acceptable anymore? Right. I wasn't sure. Like this, in my mind, could have been the end of jujitsu in, in Alberta, at least for a long time. Thankfully, when I came back, I had probably about that 50% drop off of people that didn't want to come back or uh, felt like it was too risky. You know, they had a, a condition or a family member with a condition. I understand that. But here's the thing that I was happy to, to see was there was a lot of walk-ins of new students, like maybe twice as many as there was before of people that had been stuck at home, nothing to do, wanted to get out and try something. And I didn't have to do any marketing. They just flooded me. That's fascinating. I've been hearing a similar story from various instructors mm -hmm. at uh, different academies. That's that's really interesting. I was talking to Malachi Friedman a while back and he was talking about this year too and the loss of this year. And he's like, thing is, we could be missing that guy who would have possibly beat train now and beat Gordon Ryan eventually, yeah. right? Or something like that this year. And sure, all this, you never know. All that potential lost. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... it's... Like I said, it's, I'm just happy to be open to the extent that we're allowed to be open right now. Yeah. Because there's some places that still aren't. And there's yeah. still rumors and whispers that it could come back again. You know, this right. second wave stuff could get shut down again. Never know. Well, okay. Enough of the bummer COVID talk. Yeah. <laughs> That's that. So I want to get back to things we love, like the academies. So we're mm -hmm. touching upon academies. I love academies. What makes an ideal academy for you? For me, this is going to sound cliche because it is a cliche is there's a saying that says your vibe attracts your tribe. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there is a bad academy. It's just going to attract and detract certain people depending on personality. That mm. personality could be the way that they spar. It could be the way that the, the instructor teaches. It could be a, any number of things. You just stick around long enough and you're going to get the students that are right for you that will learn the best under you just by attrition. So then what is the vibe of your academy? We're pretty informal, pretty laid back. Like I like a clean aesthetic look to the gym. So mm -hmm. that's kind of like everything is very black on white, traditional looking, pretty clean. But we're not very formal when it comes to traditionality of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We don't have to say us. They don't call me professor. We bow once at the beginning of class and once at the end. And that's about it. It's like it's, it's peer to peer is how I like to do it. Cause that's how I was brought up through the system. I just called my coach, Dave, who didn't yeah. have any formalities like that. We're there for the arts, you know, like we're here for the knowledge. I, it's less militaristic, I guess. I, I love to hear that. Are you guys uh, lining up by belt rank? Are you guys mm -hmm. allowing men to train with women? And yeah, uh, we line up at the beginning for the bow in by belt rank. Everybody trains with everybody. 
I'm fascinated by these logistics of every academy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting to see the trends and how they go and how everyone differs so much in, in these nuances. Drew, can you tell me, you know, since you have an academy and all this experience, a time when you witnessed something special or like a, a moment of growth or moments, you know, whether it was like with your students or your own progression as well? That's a great question because I could probably give an answer for for any of those, for, for the scene, for please the academy, do. for yeah, please myself. Do. Here's one that, that any other instructor will be able to vibe with is there's a difference and definitely a, a very particular type of growth that happens when you are no longer the student and your job is to convey your knowledge to other people as an instructor. Not only does that have to make you understand how to orate what you do physically, which is a skill mm -hmm. unto itself mm -hmm. that can be very difficult and it took me a long time to get the hang of, but also it forces you to really put a magnifying glass on the details that make anything work or not. So you get a broader understanding of the, the meta logistics of jujitsu as a whole and start to see a lot of overarching concepts and reasons why things work instead of like, I'm going to do a flower sweep. It's like, well, what makes a flower sweep work? What happens if they stop this? Is there something that can be changed to make it work? And that is a, a very significant growth that happens mm -hmm. that is kind of unfortunate that not everybody gets to experience. Because I know there's some people that just are not going to be instructors. They don't want to. It's not their, their path. But that growth, I feel, is very particular to that type of effort. That's interesting when you were talking about the improvement or, of oration, right? Mm -hmm. Where I think that often translate in instructionals too, right? You Sometimes you get guys that are world champions, but they just don't, it just doesn't translate, you know? Yeah. Like in yeah. terms of instruction. I was talking recently with uh, Robert Drysdale. I was on his podcast with David Avalon. And uh, one of the things that all three of us, since we were all instructors there, and they have so much more experience than me, it was great oh, yeah. to sort of get get that. Um, Legends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. David's was, on the show next week, yeah. Oh, awesome. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, it was good to kind of get, I guess, a nod to the stuff that I was experiencing. Like, yeah, this is, this is right. This is how we experience it as well. And part of that is the understanding that I'm just going to throw some random statistics out there that I just mm -hmm. made up in my head. But I would say that 80% of anything I do in a given role is subconscious. And mm -hmm. there's a lot to be discovered there that mm -hmm. we, we don't learn implicitly, but mm -hmm. we learn kinetically while we're rolling. And then we have to unpack that, or we don't, but we can unpack that later on and, and figure out why things work. And it's not because we can't make them work. We make them work every role, but we don't know why we're doing what we do. We just do mm -hmm. it because, you know, the unconscious motor pathways that we've built up over thousands of hours of rolling just becomes natural reaction, which is great for rolling. The less you have to think about something, the faster you can do it. You just, mm -hmm. your body snaps into the right place. But then being able to convey that and teach that to somebody to help build it into their systems faster, it's really what my focus is in instruction. That sounds like, I guess, for the layman, teaching someone how to walk. It's, exactly. Like, it how would life. you explain that to someone? Yeah, that's so bizarre. I know Maliki brought that up too. Again, when he was talking about other world champions, he's like, "Look, some of these, some of these guys have been doing it since they were, you know, little ones, little babies in Brazil or something mm -hmm. like that, right? They don't think about these things and they don't have to, you know, explain how they were doing these things because they're second nature to these guys." Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't uh, look down on them for it either. It would be frustrating yeah, no. as an expert at that level to have to like granularly break down everything to a brand new person <laughs> who doesn't know how to set up a spider guard, you know? Right. 
To touch on that point, you have an academy. What do you think makes a great BJJ leader? Because a lot of it seems like it's a leadership type of thing as well. Mm. This is something that I'm still kind of trying to figure out, to be honest, because I was never really a leader in any other position of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I was always the, the worker, the laborer, the, you know, I was in the trades for 15 years as a journeyman welder before I actually started up my own business. Wow. And like everything came out of passion for me when it comes to things that I lead. It wasn't because I wanted to be a leader. Mm-hmm. It was because I wanted to do that thing. So it mm-hmm. started with tournament promotion. I wanted to do that thing. I felt like I could do a good job running a tournament. It wasn't because I wanted to be the boss man. It was because I wanted to make a better tournament for my guys to compete at. And I guess it's the same thing with jujitsu. It's like I'm just still trying, struggling every day to get better at jujitsu. And the best way for me to do that is to live jujitsu, right? So Uh that's either you're going to be a full-time athlete, which wasn't really an option for me with my family life, but it was an option to be a full-time instructor because that can be its own, like you're saying, academy is your own business. Realize, well, number one, yeah, leadership is a constant. It's a whole other class, it seems Mm -hmm. like, right? That's why there are all these books on on leadership. And I think when I hear black belts who run academies, a lot of them, especially brand new black belts who are open up brand new academies, oftentimes they don't understand what they're sort of walking into, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to learn how to get better in all these different aspects, uh, leadership, marketing, advertising, yep. all these things, you know, instruction as well. And family time, how do you balance all of these things? The balance is tricky. There's a lot of things I'm doing day to day. So yeah. I'm running because jitsu i'm running an academy i was running tournaments which was like three month projects at a time i've got a family of four kids and a wife single income so everything relies on me in that way i've got instructionals that i'm putting out i've got websites that i'm building it's it's a constant constant thing and like for right now my academy is still new enough that i'm the only employee so it's it's Mm -hmm. all on my plate. So balance is, it's day to day. I probably don't do the best job of it, to be honest, but it's constant. Like I'm always onto the next thing, onto the next thing, onto the next thing until it's time to go to bed. Well, you have over a thousand Instagram posts, um, if not more. Yeah. I've been doing Because Jitsu for over five years. and I think we're over 6,300 posts on there. That is crazy. Would you be a white belt again? You know, I already did at one point. I started uh, judo about a year ago, um, we had a black belt who was teaching a class a couple times a week when I first opened my academy. I figured we'd have a couple different arts in there. And I did. I started back as a white belt in judo and it was a blast. Uh, mm-hmm. He ended up having to move away to the other side of the country. So we lost mm-hmm. our black belt. But I picked up a lot of knowledge that, I mean, it's a very relatable art to jujitsu. I mean, they come mm-hmm. from the same genesis but there's certain focuses in one over the other that complement the other that i had definitely not spent the time on obviously mm. anyone who does brazilian jiu-jitsu knows we don't spend a lot of time on our feet maybe five to ten percent if you're lucky mm-hmm. uh, judo is absolutely the opposite so for the hour to two hours that you play judo you're on your feet for almost all of it it really helped build some confidence into my stand-up game but also just the understanding and knowledge of weight placement displacement getting people off balance little minute things that make sense to me when i'm on my back when i'm sweeping Mm -hmm. somebody but i didn't understand how they related when you're on your feet what would you do differently if you did have to start jujitsu over again Oh, man. Uh, Like today had to start it back over. Yeah, I would at least be in a more 
grown seam. So it would be easier to start it over again. Mm. I feel mm. like uh, everything that I did was the long way. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of ended up at the same end point to a degree. You know, every, every path is a little different, but it definitely took a lot longer to get there. But part of that is it's a little um, richer for that because I had to take in instruction from so many different places. Like I've, I've taken privates under Coyotera, Guy Mendez, Robert yeah. Drysdale, like legends that I didn't have to if I had like a 300-person Gracie Baja next door. Right. That's interesting. I did see it. I think it was an IG post of yours where you got Guy to come up to, mm-hmm. it was your academy to do a um, seminar? No, I actually, I held, I held a public seminar with Guy Mendez in 2013, uh, open oh. for everybody in Alberta. And we had like, I think we had like 70 people come out from about 15 different gyms. It was awesome. That sounds so punk rock. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's, it's very DIY putting on your own show kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I was already a promoter at that point. So I was used to running public events. People knew me as a, as a figure in the scene that did public events. So it just made sense to do a seminar. And at that point in Alberta, nobody was doing big name seminars. They would have like their affiliate head come up and do a private one for their people, do a promotion. But public seminars weren't really a thing. So Coyotera was the first one I did. And then Guy Mendez was shortly after that, I think they were like three weeks apart or something like mm. that. So mm. it was it was a giant boom of information and I guess like coming together of the scene at that point. Can you talk about a time you wanted to quit and why? One time for sure, and specifically, it's it relates to the conversation because it was how because Jitsu got started was mm. so going back in the tail to where I cut the affiliation ties to Zenith. Mm -hmm. I was two and a half years into my purple belt, no stripes at that point that had to do kind of politically that we were a small gym that couldn't afford to bring people up to grade us. Uh, We couldn't afford to fly down to Vegas, have all our students graded there. And so it literally was two full years where nobody got a single stripe on their belt. There were white belts that were training for two years that were zero stripe white belts. So you have to understand the mentality of the gym at that point was not good. We had just gotten out of that affiliation where we felt like we got very little out of it uh, Mm -hmm. for the gym. We had lost a lot of people along the way that just weren't allowed to progress with their rank. And I I know it sounds silly because you still get jujitsu from every class, but rank matters to people. And it feels like an insult when you're not being ranked. So we got out of that and we were stuck in limbo for like five months at that point (laughs) where we weren't sure if we were going to find another affiliation, how to find another affiliation, who we should go with. Um, It was back and forth and we had no direction before Dave came in. But in that time, I legitimately thought about quitting jujitsu just for, Mm. for purely political reasons. Like, I don't think I can go anywhere with this. I think we're Mm. stuck. This is the end. I'm not going to another gym. There weren't that many options anyways. And wow. Yeah. Like it just, it got really dark for me at that point. And it was because of that sort of malaise that I was in that I started because just kind of on a lark one day mid shift while I was welding, I I pulled my phone out and started an Instagram account and uh, 
downloaded a free meme maker and started making memes about jujitsu as it was meant like to be pointed when it began. I, I meant mm-hmm. to like poke fun at jujitsu because of the absurdities in it, politically especially, but, but mm-hmm. even just like uh, interpersonally, there's lots of little silly things that are easy to poke fun at. It started off being like sardonic, but I, I started noticing right away that it was catching speed and a lot of people were laughing with me and were enjoying the humor and were relating to the humor and it started to, it felt less like I was alone and more like this is, we're all doing this. We're all in this together. And this, Mm. you know, we all understand the absurdities and it's okay. It's okay to laugh at ourselves sometimes. And so it sort of switched at about like a 500 to a thousand followers. It switched to more like sarcastic humor instead of sardonic. Like it wasn't dark anymore. It was, Mm -hmm. it was just funny and, and silly. And I mean, between the time that I started Because Jitsu and, and when I got my brown belt surprised upon me, that probably held me through that time that I probably would have quit. That's so interesting that it was a matter of frustration versus like an injury that mm-hmm. put you in that position. <laughs> typically... I've had plenty of injuries too. Yeah. Like, wow. None of them have ever made me think that I was going to quit. It was always just the time clock ticking down to when I can get back. You transitioned right into my next question. What are some of your uh, nagging injuries and pains and, and what do you do to mitigate them? What kind of health tips can you give to practitioners? Yeah, well, uh, personally for me, it's been my knees for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a lanky guy, so I end up getting caught and twisted up, whether by my own volition or someone else's into weird pretzels and uh, have had my knees blown several times on both sides. So lots of scar tissue in there, lots of, Mm. thankfully, no surgeries. I haven't had the ACL go, which is great. Um, But my MCL and LCLs have had multiple abuses and uh, definitely don't work the same way that they used to. That just comes with the territory, man. We're in a combat sport. It's hard on the body and they call it the gentle art. And I think that that's hilarious. I think that's (laughs) the the greatest troll that Halio ever created was naming it the gentle art. Some fantastic marketing, master marketers. <laughs> exactly. We trick them in through the door, we throw yeah. them on their head. But for mitigating injury, you're going to find there's certain people that you roll with that are more prone to injure you. Figure out who they are early and limit your time rolling with them. You aren't obliged to have to train with them every class, especially if they've hurt you a couple classes in a row find somebody else. That's on you. That's Nobody's going to force you to roll with them. And if they do, just say, I'm, I'm still injured from the last time I did. I'm going to sit out. Maybe it's because we have less formality in our gym. It's, it's not as rigid. Like I'm not going to force somebody to roll with anybody, but that is a way that you can kind of protect yourself from those people that, whether it's just a style or a personality mashup that always ends you up on the short end of the stick getting hurt, that has a time clock on it. That's not feasible over the long run. For when you have injuries, it's less who you're training with and more how you're training. You need to be specifically thinking about what's hurt and where is it going to be the most dangerous if you're designed to train at all at that point. If you feel like you're ready to come back and try training injured, I have no problem with that. In fact, that's kind of the story of how half guard happened with Gordo is he blew his knee really badly and couldn't close his closed guard. And mm-hmm. back in when it, whenever it was the seventies, closed guard was the only guard. Like if you didn't have a closed guard, if you had half a guard, that means you were half past 
You just mm-hmm. had to get back to full guard. So he had to figure out a way to use half of a full guard that ended up revolutionizing that part of the game into what we know as half guard now. I'm not saying everybody has to become an innovator, but mm-hmm. you'll find your own path. Like, you know, water will flow around the rocks and you'll find, uh, this, is, this is cool too, is my game actually exploded certain points because of injuries. Like I used to be very triangle heavy from blue to purple belt most of my finishes in tournament were triangles at that point, but then my knee started to go and I couldn't close triangles anymore. It would be painful for me to even try. So I had to change how I rolled so that either the path didn't end in a triangle or if it did, that I had other options that didn't rely on the triangle. So I got really good at going to arm bars from triangle positions instead or uh, hitting sweeps and stuff like that. And it, Mm. it blew out my game in a direction that it probably wouldn't have had to otherwise and maybe i wouldn't be as good there if i hadn't had that injury what are you uh, still experimenting with in or are you still experimenting sure. with jujitsu oh, yeah. and uh what are you finding interesting i go through phases like anybody i'm sure and they last for varying amounts of time there was uh that period i talked about brown belt where i focused a full year on passing that was all i was focused on i had spent probably the one that's most recognized right now publicly is I spent a lot of time on a certain grip called a reverse Kimura. I put out two instructionals on it. I'm actually going to be making a, a big and all encompassing instructional on it in the next couple of weeks. Oh, cool. Yeah. More news on that later, but nice. uh, that was a focus for probably eight months to a year of trying to figure out all the ways that I could use that. But then like I was talking about the overarching concepts that you start to figure out or start to track as you instruct day to day, I found a lot of through line concepts that were really interesting to me through I guess, like binary concepts. So for instance, passing and being passed, it's the same thing happening, but from two different sides of the same coin. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the same concepts play if you're the passer or if you're the one retaining guard. So guard Mm -hmm. retention has a lot to do with countering guard passing. Mm -hmm. So understanding the interplay between those things has been very interesting for me. And uh, again, shameless plug, I put out a couple of series that one is on guard retention, one's on guard passing for that reason. I I could have put out just one, but it made so much sense to put out both because they, if you've watched one, the second one makes more sense. It doesn't matter which Mm -hmm. one you start with. I watched the guard retention one and I was, you know, I've seen other guard retention, fantastic guard retention instructionals. And I thought, I'm good. And then I saw yours and, and I was blown away by all the the revelations I get. And I was like, wow, this is, this is really great stuff. Appreciate it. Despite watching all of this other guard retention stuff. Yeah, I try, especially for those ones. Uh, the reverse Kimura is a lot more specific and niche because it's just mm-hmm. a grip, right? Whereas I'm mm-hmm. talking about big concepts like the guard game, mm-hmm. uh, top and bottom. I try to f- boil down as much as I can to the concepts that make it work or don't. And mm-hmm. if you can understand those, then you can kind of track wherever you are as the passer or the person being passed, no matter what guard you're passing, no matter what guard you're using. Am I in line with this concept? You know, where am I in relation to center line? Where am I at in relation to height, slope? Do I need to reset my hip position on the mats? Little things like I won't go into the details because you can watch them on the videos, but mm-hmm. they're, they're boiling down I thought pretty well into like three to four minute videos that should get the point across right away and be able to change anybody's understanding of that type of play without having to go through a hundred different types of guard 
where can we get more information about that, about your instructionals and stuff? Sure. Yeah. So I've got my own instructionals on my own website. That's just because-jitsu.com. I've got actually a mini series that I just shot today about three hours ago. That'll be going out. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'll have that out before Black Friday. So hopefully next week that'll be available. I'm thinking of doing more mini series like this. Like it's, it was 10 guillotine chokes, 10 different mm-hmm. types of guillotines. So mm-hmm. little plug and play packs that you can sort of jam through real quick. And then I'm, like I say, I'm going to do a big instructional. I'm basically doing a redo, like a version 2.0 on the reverse Kimura down with Keenan Cornelius at uh, Jiu-Jitsu X down in San Diego. Wow, I'll be there next week. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's an amazing endeavor. I want to be respectful of your time. So where yeah. can we find all of the socials and everything mm-hmm. with you? I know you chimed about some of them. I'm putting up my own jujitsu content every day on my personal drew.weatherhead on Instagram. So at drew.weatherhead. And you can find me on YouTube under Because Jitsu. I've got a bunch of old instructional that I put up there. I honestly haven't updated it much in, in the last year. I've been focusing more on uh, the Instagram side. Mm-hmm. But also I'm filming every technique session from every class I do. I run 10 classes a week and we're cataloging all that to build a member site that should be out before the end of the year so there'll be hundreds of videos on there that people can check out for like a a few bucks a month kind of thing and also i want to thank you for not for being probably one of the few bjj practitioners out there not posting political stuff i really appreciate that (laughs) god i'm so sick of it i'm so sick of it i don't want to get my political uh (laughs) education from bjj practitioners no take no offense No, to be honest, it's probably not on purpose. I'm not specifically avoiding it. I just, I avoid the news in general because it's, it's such bullshit in so many directions, you know? So toxic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And I appreciate you being on the show so very much. And everyone out there, Drew's instruction is fantastic. His style of teaching. And it's not because you're here right now, Drew. I watched and I'm, as I said, that, you know, the guard retention video stuff was fantastic. The way you you educate us on the way you go about it is, is excellent. Oh, I thank you so much. That actually means a whole lot to me. And I don't, I don't throw that around lightly. That's very important to me. Well, thank you everyone for watching and listening to the show again. I am Adolfo Feranda at Forever White Belt Show on Instagram. Go to our anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt and all the places. Google us. Thank you so much for your time and watching everyone out there. See you guys next week. Thanks, Drew. See ya.